And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Tonight on PBS stations across the country, including Channel 10 in Milwaukee, a one-hour documentary will be airing that examines the life and legacy of our 39th president, Jimmy Carter. This film is airing as part of the series In Their Own Words. In part one of today's morning show, I speak with the creator and executive producer of the series, Chuck Delaclis. At the end of the hour, in part two of today's program, you will hear the interview that I was privileged to record with Jimmy Carter himself back in 2005. I began my interview with Chuck Delaclis by asking him about the purpose of this documentary series, which, in contrast to many documentaries that air on PBS, takes, in a sense, a tighter, more focused view of its subjects, rather than a broad, expansive canvas. We like to think of, of these films as defining the themes of people's lives. And often, when you, when you see films about people's lives, sometimes you, people lose track of what motivated their actions later in life from what happened earlier in life. And in this format, it allows us to connect the dots clearly for the viewer. Uh, so much of Jimmy Carter's life, uh, later life and, and middle life and everything he did was so affected by his upbringing, was so affected by those who affected him early in his life that anybody can watch this and, and see that the reason he was and is so dedicated to the causes that are important to him were throughout his presidency and even after his presidency, many of them, the majority of them were developed from him early in life. Hmm. One of the interesting questions that uh, I, I feel prompted to ask is that at the outset, uh, where did you and your and your team fall in terms of your feelings for Jimmy Carter, uh, and to what extent that that matters, and I, I think it matters to some extent. I mean, how did you how did you kind of handle your own feelings? I mean, whether you were admirers of Jimmy Carter or or more critics, uh, how does one sort of take one's own feelings about the person uh, being examined and uh, and use those in a sense wisely? Uh, to not uh, color the perspective of, of, of the film too much? Well, you know, <clears throat> just like somebody watching a film like this, you learn. And, and you come into these projects with a certain amount of predetermined beliefs. As you start to, or as we started to, talk to those who were so effective uh, in Jimmy's life, in the president's life, uh, everyone from Stuart Eisenstadt to Andrew Young, um, on down to his 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 children, we started to learn so much more about him than we thought we knew. And that's what's so great about doing films like this. That's what's so powerful about doing these films is whatever predetermined beliefs we may have had going into this. If you do your job right, those get um, those get redefined, and ours were redefined because Jimmy Carter is often 
looked at as somebody who had a um, uh, a less than ideal presidency and a great post presidency. However, when you start to really dive in and you start to look at his presidency, he was a pretty effective president. He made mistakes, uh, 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 a fair amount of them. I, I defy anybody to show us a president who hasn't or, or, or didn't. Just because he was a one-term president doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't follow through with many of his agenda points. And he did. He stayed true to them. Uh, I think there was an optics issue. This was a different time. And, and so he wasn't the kind of president who was so worried about what people thought of him. He was going to do in his presidency what he felt he wanted to do, what was important for the country, what, what, what he felt was necessary, no matter what. And that's what shocked us the most, was how effective his presidency actually was. Hmm. In terms of what he accomplished, I mean, one might take issue. I mean, one might be glad about those accomplishments or those items of legislation or, or not be so, so enthusiastic. But, but the fact is, a lot happened. He made a lot happen. And, uh, and of course, some of that is lost uh, kind of in the fog of, of course, uh, some of the difficulties that engulfed his presidency later on, which, of course, we'll talk especially about. Towards, especially towards the end. Right. And, that, and, and frankly, as I, when I talk about optics, you know, this was, this was before Ronald Reagan came in and really created the concept of optics. But Jimmy Carter didn't think about optics. He, he, he cared what people thought. He wanted to be liked. He wanted it. But he was going to stay true to what he felt his way of governing was the proper, the right way of governing. And he did that and, to, and, and does not regret it. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Chuck DeLaclis, who is uh, creator and executive producer of the documentary series In Their Own Words. And airing tonight is a, uh, an episode of In Their Own Words devoted to former President Jimmy Carter. Uh, Mr. DeLaclis, I am very impressed by the number of notable guests who are featured in this film. And again, it is of a modest length. I think the total length is something like 53 or 54 minutes. And it's, it's just incredible how much ground you cover and how many uh, intriguing voices uh, we, we hear in this film. I mean, besides the voice, of course, of uh, Jimmy Carter himself. Uh, I mean... Journalists like Sam Donaldson and Brian Williams, celebrities like Garth Brooks and David Letterman and Trisha Yearwood, and and uh, those who were had important roles in the Carter administration, and some important people from Jimmy Carter's family. Um, take us inside that process of kind of reaching out to uh, a variety of of people important in the life of Jimmy Carter and. Uh, uh, just how pleased are you by this array of special guests who are part of this film? Well, um, interestingly enough, when you're doing these kinds of shows, getting people to commit their time to talk about people can be can be daunting and at times difficult. Uh, this particular project, um, we did not have that happen. People People were lined up to be able to come and speak about uh, this particular person, this this subject, this president, um, and and 
part of that is a testament to airing on PBS that people know subjects know that 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 the kind of films that that air on PBS are honest that they are uh, forth, forthcoming forthright and so they know that they're not going to be that their messaging or, or their memories are not going to be uh, for lack of a better term edited to to fulfill an agenda we our agenda is simple which is to try to tell the truth and capture history through the eyes and memories of those who were part of it. So the people who we did interview, and, and we interviewed a lot of the family members. Um, we interviewed um, President Carter's uh, reverend. Uh, we also spent a lot of time uh, with Mary Prince, who was Amy Carter's longtime nanny, um, who, who still is a caregiver to the president and the first lady. People really wanted to talk about this person. They wanted to talk about how he is misunderstood, that his presidency was misunderstood. And they also wanted to talk about his commitment to his causes. And when we reached out to people like Garth and we reached out to people like uh, uh, David Letterman, it, it took... It took seconds for them to say yes. Literally, yes, we'll do it. And that's that. You know, that's a testament again to PBS, but it's also a testament to the subject. We, we, we in the series, we feature um, Angela Merkel as a as an episode. Uh, President uh, George Bush and uh, Hillary Clinton couldn't wait to talk about Angela Merkel. And so, I think if you tell the story the right way, if your mission is to tell the truth and to dissect the key moments in these people's lives, you're airing on, on PBS and, and the other films that we've done have been, uh, have, have gotten great response. It's, it's, it's really amazing when people want to say, sure, I'm in. And we got a lot of that. One of the things that I learned from your film, perhaps I knew this once upon a time, but if I knew this, I had completely forgotten this, is who Jimmy Carter's father was. I don't mean what his name was, but I just mean who he was in terms of what kind of a person he was and what he represented in terms of the South. Uh, I suspect maybe some of our listeners also maybe do not remember this really important aspect of Jimmy Carter's family. Tell our listeners, please, about Jimmy Carter's father. Well, by all accounts, uh, James Carter Sr. was uh, a conservative, narrow-minded racist, as, as Chip Carter, um, uh, Jimmy's son, called it. Uh, but not a conservative, narrow-minded racist, because it was fun to be that he was a man of his, not that it would ever be fun to be that, but he was a man of his time. He believed in social hierarchy. He believed um, as hard as it is to believe at all that, that whites were, were at the top of society. He was, he was a white supremacist. Um, And he had people working for him. uh, And he, it was really, really difficult for Jimmy Carter 
to be in that world because his mother, she was a nurse who actually took care of um, black patients for free. So there was this schism for young Jimmy Carter. He had his father who had one level of belief system. He had his mother who had another level of belief system. And he, he had to take the, 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 he had a, the, the road split for him. Which, which, which direction was he going to go? And he went the direction that he went, the proper direction, the right direction. And he did that because he found himself immersed in those who worked for his father in their communities. They were, in essence, his caregivers. They were the people who he surrounded himself with. And they told him stories. They built his belief in God. They built his belief in the environment. These were good-hearted, honest people, and these people of color took Jimmy Carter under their wings. So with the messaging, the important messaging from his mother in actions and in words, and almost a surrogate uh, mother in an African-American woman who worked for his father, Jimmy Carter, he had a window, he had a window into what was right and what was good, Mm. and that affected him. It is so interesting to contemplate what that household was like. I mean, the I mean, it, a, a household where the father saw the world in one way, and the mother saw the world in a very, very different way, and and I just can't stop thinking about <laughs> what dinner table conversations were like and that sort of thing, or. Or if maybe even at a young age, Jimmy Carter was learning how to proceed courageously yet carefully through the world, a world in which so many people around him uh, had beliefs uh, drastically different from his own. Yes, and and he learned he learned that you could often make bigger change by quietly pursuing what was right, as opposed to, you know, if, if you had patience. And later on, later on, you know, he, he needed to become governor of, of uh, Georgia. And uh, uh, he had to make some really harsh decisions, which is to become that, he needed to gain both the white and black platform. And that Walking that line and having to define your messaging in a way that affected both, both at the time spectrums, he realized that sometimes walk softly and carry a big stick mattered. And he showed patience, much like he showed patience in his early days growing up in the household that he grew up in, that he wasn't going to change his father's views. His father was his father, and so he he knew that he that it was a long walk for him to to make it make change, right? And of Impact course, change. sure, and that of course helps him navigate those years of the civil rights movement, uh, and and okay. of course beyond. I really loved the story uh, told in your film about a moment in the Naval Academy, in which uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, comes to the aid or comes uh, to support somebody who was 
facing uh, harassment uh, because of the color of his skin. Uh, tell our listeners about this. So uh, Jimmy Carter, at a, at a young age, um, he, he was accepted to the Naval Academy. Um, what's, what, what, what was amazing to me is once he got in, he was in the top, top 10% of his class. He was, he was a high achiever. Um, <clears throat> while he was at Annapolis, um, the first African-American who was going to graduate from the Naval Academy, he, was matric- he matriculated, and he was a midshipman by the name of uh, Wesley Brown. Um, they were in the cross-country team together. Jimmy Carter and Wesley Brown. And Brown was harassed. He was hazed back then. Um, and Jimmy Carter stood up and he defended Brown. He said, that's not acceptable. That's not going to happen. And later, years later, Brown remembered that in a book that he wrote, that Jimmy Carter was one of the reasons that he actually was able to make it to the Academy because Jimmy Carter was, 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 not going to allow that hazing. Hmm. What would you say was the impetus for Jimmy Carter, who, after his father dies, returns to Plains, Georgia, leaving the Navy in order to take up the family business? What do you think was at the heart of his decision to enter the world of politics? I've learned in doing these films that it's hard to get into truly what 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 people are are thinking. You can only sort of dance around it. From the people who we've spoken to, who were very close to him, um, and are very close to him, I think part of it. I think part of the, part of his reason to get into uh, politics was because he wanted to stand up for those less fortunate, including the African American community. He wanted to to help them find their way in a in a really difficult time and space. I think that is part of the reason. And he he did he did talk a little bit about that. Um, he was he was idealistic. He saw the devastating effect of racial discrimination. He wanted African Americans and white children to go to school together. And he, and and that's why he says he entered into politics was to make that difference, to be able to create an open and accepting population. Hmm. He is successful in his bid for the state Senate, (laughs) and your film tells us that uh, he did not give Rosalind, his wife, any advance notice whatsoever that he was going to do this. I mean, when he is putting on his suit in the middle of a weekday, uh, and there's no church to go to, uh, that's when she finds out about his plan. So, but he is successful and then uh, ultimately runs for governor of Georgia and is unsuccessful. There is something dramatically different about the second time he runs for governor, a second bid which is successful. And I think this is one of the most fascinating chapters in the Jimmy Carter story. Uh, tell our listeners about the way in which he went about this second campaign for the governorship of Georgia. Well, he he lost because he st- 
stayed true to what was right. And the people of Georgia were, were unwilling at the time, uh, segregationists. They, they were, they were unwilling at the time to accept that, that platform. Uh, when he lost, he was depressed. And as Jonathan Alter calls it, he had something of a crisis of faith. Um, he went on Baptist missions. He went door to door as a missionary. Um, and his faith deepened, and he knew, he came to the revelation that to make the greater difference, to make the greater good, sometimes you had to, as I said earlier, walk softly, carry a big stick, tiptoe your way in. So he had a choice to make. He could either denounce segregationists, or he could become the governor of Georgia. So he towed the line, and he whispered, in, in essence, he said to his black supporters, don't listen to how I'm campaigning. Wait till I'm in and see the difference I make. And that's, a, that's threading the needle as a politician. But he did it. He needed to get the, the votes of the conservative whites. He ran as an ultra-conservative, somewhat racist, redneck platform, but he won. And then he gives his inaugural address, and we see a few moments from this inaugural address. Uh, Explain about the dramatic moment in this speech and the announcement he makes. Yeah, uh, it was a long campaign. Um, and he stood up in front on his inauguration, in his inaugural speech, and he said, um, quite frankly, and this this quote echoed, uh, "The time for racial discrimination is over." The crowd gasped. The white supporters were stunned that he said that, and they got up, and many of them walked out. They thought. He pulled a bait and switch. They thought, wait a minute, that's not how he campaigned. And he made that statement. The black supporters were in awe that somebody was standing by them. His white supporters, many of whom gasped and walked out. Hmm. You know, it's such an interesting moment as, as when we see it because he makes this announcement and we just sort of expect this roar of applause because that just feels like a, a an applause line so to speak and instead there's just this very tepid applause and 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 one realizes that the african americans who were in that crowd probably did not feel safe cheering uh, i mean so so anybody who even felt good about what that statement represented were not you know cheering heartily and, of course, many people in that crowd were not cheering at all, and many of them even left. I mean, walked out. Uh, yeah. So what— and you know, what's, um, what's interesting is in making these films, you know, often often when you get into your sound mix or you get into your picture mix, you you like, okay, well, do we drop volume here? What do we do here to affect this moment, to make this moment, to really, to really pop— what really happened we didn't touch that we let it play and when you let something like that play and that silence is deafening and the murmur murmur when you said something like that 
you know, our, our note in, in, in the mix was let this be exactly what it is. There's, there's, there's no need to do anything here. So he is governor. And of course he sets about doing exactly what he promised to do, to do whatever he could to, uh, end overt racial discrimination in the state of Georgia, uh, doing things that were both symbolic and substantive and your your film uh, outlines uh, some of that explain what prompted Jimmy Carter to aspire for the presidency to think seriously about running for the presidency uh, it's it's for a really interesting reason or under very interesting circumstances well they they at the time when he was governor all these people running for president would would stop by the governor's mansion because of course you know getting getting the endorsement of the governor was important and they would talk politics and they were there and they were talking about their messaging and their missions and they were they were living in the governor's mansion and uh, he they would sit around at night and he would talk to these candidates one-on-one and with the family. And he said, I know more than they do. I, I can implement these programs that, that they're trying to pass and I can get them passed. I'm kind of smarter than a lot of these guys. I know how government works. Why shouldn't I run for president? And again, including Rosalind, he took everyone by surprise and he said, he brought the whole family in and said, I'm running for president, and I can win. <laughs> Stunned them. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Chuck Delaclis, and he is series producer and creator of the documentary series In Their Own Words. And tonight, a film is airing on PBS that chronicles the life of former president Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, who hailed from Plains, Georgia, population 678, we're told. I'm not sure if that was the population when he was born there or when he ran for president or what it is now, but a tiny, tiny town. Uh, well, I've, I, I've, I've, spent, uh, I've spent a fair amount of time there now, and uh, it's not a bustling metropolis. <laughs> right. So, uh, so Jimmy Carter is... Uh, someone who is uh, running, in a sense, with a couple of strikes against him. Certainly he is not well-known. I mean, has little or no national profile. Uh, what people, what little people do know about him, it tends to be that he's a peanut farmer, whatever that means, and so on. But on top of all of that, uh, Jimmy Carter has uh, a very interesting family with a couple of very colorful characters, including his brother, Billy Carter. Uh, especially for the sake of, of those too young to know this story or maybe who have forgotten, describe what Billy Carter was like. Um, Billy Carter was a redneck. He was a beer-drinking, uh, gas station-owning, uh, down home country boy. And one of the most interesting things about the story is how deeply troubled and offended Jimmy Carter is at the way his family 
is being uh, depicted or portrayed in the media. And, of course, he is, in a sense, drawing his family into the mix right from the start, but he has no control over how the media is going to convey this part of the Jimmy Carter story. Uh, And I think your film goes out of its way to try to underline the way in which the nature of the media, the American media, had changed by this point in time in the wake of both Vietnam and Watergate. Yeah. um, The media was more intrusive now. The media, if you think about the, the John F. Kennedy presidency where the media was, quote, respectful, end quote, of his private life. And they, they kept whatever additional information. They, they, were, they were selective in, in how they created their messaging. After Vietnam, after Watergate, the media became, uh, they, they became bloodhounds. And here was Ms. Lillian, who was a colorful, colorful character, who spoke her mind. You've got Billy, who was really straight out of central casting, made for TV. And Jimmy Carter did not like the way that his family was being depicted. He did not like that his family was being, uh, that his family was being covered in the way that they were. And the problem was that they were using the campaign was using their family to exemplify the kind of man Jimmy Carter was, a small-town guy with a small-time family. But you can't have your cake and eat it, too, when you're running for president back then, Hmm. or now. You have to take the good with the bad, and the media was unrelenting. Hmm. These these characters were way too colorful to ignore. Well, and then, of course, speaking of colorful, your film explores that whole chapter involving the famous Playboy magazine interview in which Jimmy Carter declares, confesses, uh, having lustful feelings in his heart and so on. His poll numbers plunge, and this election is razor close. But Jimmy Carter, of course, is elected our next president. Um, I'm so glad that your, your film takes the time to talk about that inauguration day and a couple of things that were quite notable, uh, uh, one involving the inauguration parade route and the other involving the way President Carter opened his inaugural speech. The uh, Chip Carter tells the story about how he was kind of trying to figure out what to do after his father was elected president. He was a young guy. He had worked on the campaign and he said to his dad, hey, got anything for me to do? And his father said, yeah, why don't you run the inauguration? Okay. And he and a bunch of friends were sitting around. They said, wouldn't it be cool if he got out of the limousine? And they went to Jimmy Carter, and he said, what would you think about you and Mom walking down Pennsylvania Avenue outside of the limousine? And Jimmy Carter said, I think it's a great idea, but nobody can know. And it was jaw-dropping back then, jaw-dropping that someone would, that, that, a, that a president and first lady would get out and walk down Pennsylvania, and they took each other's hands and they walked, and it was almost like a cleansing for America. <laughs> a, 
I was and, just and, I was just 16 years old at the time, and it made a huge impact on me. I will never forget that as long as I live, the sight of that. And then to the inaugural speech. Yeah, we sat down with Stephen Ford, who was Gerald Ford's son, um, and what an amazing story he has, just, just talking about his, his life and his father's life. But um, Jim, he told the story about the first line of Jimmy Carter's speech, and they were, they were up on the balcony with him, and he said, I want to thank my predecessor for all he did to heal our land. And coming off of Watergate, coming off, off of Richard Nixon, and the, the, as, Jimmy, as, as uh, Brian Williams says, the stench, that, that, that America was under. Um, to hear that, it was almost like a, a cumulative sigh of relief for America saying, okay, there is goodness. There is goodness back in the White House. Mm. Your film goes on, as we have already touched on, to chronicle the significant accomplishments of Jimmy Carter uh, in, in the first half of his presidency, a huge number of legislative bills that are signed. And again, whether one voted for or against Jimmy Carter or was with him uh, ideologically or politically, uh, it is inaugurable that he accomplished a lot, much of his agenda, and many things not properly appreciated, things like doing much to normalize relations between the United States and China but much beyond that as well. Of course, things begin to go less and less well, in part because Jimmy Carter uh, was not actually all that interested in politics or playing the political game. And then, of course, ultimately his presidency is engulfed by this awful uh, Iranian hostage crisis. And uh, he doesn't have a chance against his Republican challenger, uh, Ronald Reagan. In that difficult final phase, uh, was there something in particular about President Carter that, in a sense, made him ill-equipped to meet these particular challenges, or were they challenges that would have, in a sense, toppled any president? Well, I mean, I'm not sure, after having spoken to Stuart Eisenstadt and to, to to Jonathan Alter and others who were there at the time, that it's so much ill-equipped as much as Jimmy Carter had one very important belief, which is peace. He did not want to go to war. And he believed that he could negotiate and get these uh, hostages released without a single shot being fired, without loss of life. Um, what he didn't count on was the media at the time. We, t- we touched on that a little earlier. But suddenly Nightline comes up, and they're counting the days, day 72, day 73 of the crisis. And the optics became very, very, very harsh. And he had a goal. I'm going to get them out, but I'm going to get them out without death, destruction, uh, war. Uh, Rightly or wrongly, that was his belief. He did not believe in violence or war. Hmm. And so 
only after a period of time did he agree to the rescue effort, and which 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 now historically we all know went went awry. Um, and there was an incredible loss of life there, which only created a trickle down in the optics. Uh, but in the end, he got those hostages. He negotiated those hostages. He negotiated their release. And on the day of Ronald Reagan's inauguration, those hostages were released. And he did it without America going to war. Now, the argument could be made, <laughs> you know, he lost his own personal presidential war. But to him, it didn't matter. Well, he says as much when Sam Donaldson asks him in a press conference at the time, you know, aren't you worried about the way you're going about this, that it's going to uh, severely damage your prospects of of winning reelection? And uh, President Carter says that is simply not in my calculation. This is not about that. Uh, and that's a kind of a breathtaking moment. In the wake of well, his, pre- especially if you, if you if you weigh it against if you weigh it against politics today, it's even more breathtaking. Right, where it's all about survival and success and so on. Absolutely. Well, of course, your film goes on to tell the remarkable story of what Jimmy Carter has gone on to do in the wake of his presidency, and uh, it helps us appreciate that so much, and also helps us, uh, in a sense, come to a better understanding of what President Carter accomplished during his presidency. Uh, it is a film that is uh, really beautifully crafted and uh, so uh, so effective. Again, this is for the series In Their Own Words uh, on PBS, and at the helm of this series, its executive producer and creator, Chuck DeLaclis. Chuck DeLaclis, I congratulate you on a really, really fine film. I very, very much enjoyed it and certainly enjoyed this opportunity to speak with you about it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. This was a really, really, this was a great one to do, and, and his story his story has been told in many ways, but we really did try to take a, an impactful and unique approach. And by the way, you can also stream it on pbs.org. Very good. Thanks again for being my guest. Thank you, Greg. You're listening to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. And to finish out today's program, we hear from former President Jimmy Carter himself. The year was 2005 when I was privileged to record an interview with President Carter talking about what was then his latest book, titled Our Endangered Values, America's Moral Crisis, published by Simon & Schuster. Uh... Let me ask you first what it was like to sit down and write about some of these admittedly complicated issues, which often involve sort of dualities, the balancing of, of things which can sometimes be in, in conflict. I know you've lived with that uh, all of your political life and since, uh, since your presidency, but what, what did you learn or what did you discern as you sat down and actually wrote about many of these complex things in this new book. Well, it, took, it took me about four years, Greg, <clears throat> to write this book. And I finished writing it about the 1st of July, so things that have happened since then are not in the book. And, and I wrote it because I see that this present administration as having promulgated a profound and radical change compared to all previous presidents, Democratic or Republican, in basic American moral values, the things that have made our country great. 
and, and, and they, they are so extensive and so profound that I thought it was time to remind the American people of it and to precipitate a more open and thorough debate about which direction our country wants to go in the future. For instance, <clears throat> we've abandoned the, the principles of our country for the last hundred years or so of not going to war unless our own security was directly threatened. Now we have a new policy, publicly prom promulgated by, pres by the president, of preemptive war. That is, we reserve the right as a powerful military country to go to war against the people and kill their citizens, if necessary, just to change an administration. We've also abandoned America's longtime role as a champion of civil liberties and privacy at home and human rights around the world. Our vice president just recently went and openly encouraged the Congress to pass a law that would permit the CIA officially and legally to torture prisoners at Guantanamo and in Agribe, a prison and so forth. We've abandoned every nuclear arms control agreement that's been uh, negotiated since the time of Dwight Eisenhower. And we've accumulated enormous deficits, $4 trillion in the last uh, five years, primarily not because we've increased uh, government expenditures for health and well-being of people and jobs, but just giveaway programs for the richest American people at the expense of the working people of this country. All of these policies that have been adopted by this administration are radical departures from what all presidents in the past have espoused and all governments have espoused. One of the uh, things that causes you great concern is something that you, you lay at the uh, at the feet of fundamentalists when you say that they have managed to change the nuances and subtleties of historic debate into black and white rigidities. <laughs> well, that's certainly true. A fundamentalist, <clears throat> by definition, and I describe this a little bit in my book, is, is, b believes that they have a unique relationship with God. And therefore, by definition, everything they believe is absolutely correct. Anyone who disagrees with them at all is wrong inherently, and therefore inferior. And they try to promulgate this absolute belief on the rest of the nation and anybody, all the rest of the world. Anybody who believes with them is okay. Anyone who disagrees is wrong. We even have a national policy of that. If you're with us 100%, okay. If you're against us on anything, then you're against us. And that's a, that's a definition of fundamentalism. And, and the most important thing is that the fundamentalist in religion and the fundamentalists in government now are openly and aggressively trying to merge the two, breaking down that wall between church and state that have been a policy of our country and one of our basic moral values. That brings to mind uh, a question which you pose to yourself in uh, right at the heart of this book and in the chapter, which I think is especially uh, interesting. You say you've been asked whether your Christian faith, Christian beliefs, ever conflicted <clears throat> with your secular duties as president, and it says something about your answer that you've posed the question as you have with with two two facets: your Christian beliefs and your secular duties as president. Yes. And of course, others who probably wouldn't see them as separately as as you did. Well, I have I'm, I happen to be a, a, a devout Christian. I'm not bragging about it on t on radio, but I, it's a fact. I've never believed that Jesus Christ would approve abortion unless the mother's life or health was directly threatened or unless maybe it was a result of, of rape or incest. And so I have a problem with abortion. But I 
was sworn to uphold the laws and constitution of the United States as interpreted by the Supreme Court. So I did. But I tried every way I could as president to minimize the need for abortions. I described it in the book. Well, and you talk about how you've uh, you you worked very hard to to do what you could for the sake of those uh, young women, for instance, who might yes. then be in better position to keep their babies and so on. That's that's right. Two thirds of the women who get an abortion claim that the reason is that they can't afford to support another child. So we had women and children's programs, the WIC program, so called, that I initiated. And we also tried to improve the the income of, of very low-income uh, people. This administration, by the way, has frozen the minimum wage at $5.15, an hour lower than any minimum wage in a developed country in the world, while the Congress have increased their own salaries by $30,000 a year during that same period. So keeping people poverty-stricken and promoting the well-being of the richest people on Earth is one of the things, indirectly, I admit, that encourages women to have abortions when otherwise they might not. And I think there's a very good opportunity to uh, decrease dramatically the number of abortions. That did happen, by the way, under the previous administration, when the, the general well-being of people was improved economically. So also to promote the, the possibility of having easier adoptions if a mother wants to go to term and have a baby and then let someone else take care of it. Those kind of things can be done, and I described it in quite some definition in the book, uh, even though we do live under the so-called Roe versus Wade ruling, which causes me some concern. But even under that, we can dramatically reduce the number of abortions if we want to. Uh, a last quick question, but it's a complicated one, I'm afraid. Sorry. For people of religious faith, uh, trying to wrestle with the difficult issues of our day. Uh, what is your advice to them? How is one to fold one's own religious faith and convictions uh, into the political realm? Well, let me just speak for Christians, because that happened to be what I, I think may partially answer your question. I think we should try to emulate the basic teachings of Jesus Christ. We worship the Prince of Peace, not the Prince of Preemptive War. I think Jesus Christ promoted freedom and uh, of people. I think he, he reached out and tried to nurture the poor. I think there's no doubt that uh, he advocated rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God, the separation of church and state. So we can search through the scriptures and find out, to answer your question, how we can apply the, the teachings of our, our religion. I think that, that, that Christ promotes justice. I think he promotes humility, service, forgiveness, compassion, love, those kind of things. Quite different, in my opinion, from what some of the fundamentalists uh, promulgate. And I try to describe this in, in constructive, not, not condemnatory language and principles in the book. The book, again, is called Our Endangered Values, America's Moral Crisis, published by Simon & Schuster. And former President Jimmy Carter, a great honor and, and privilege for me to speak with you today on The Morning Show. I thank you. Thank you, Greg. I've enjoyed it very much.